you know, I still have the boots today, and there's just the tiniest little pinprick of a burn on the exterior of the boot the size of, like, a ballpoint pen. You know, when we got down later and they cut our clothes off, took off my boot, I mean, literally the sock inside was blown apart. I'm Rebecca Huntington, and you're listening to The Fine Line, real stories of adventure, risk, and rescue in the backcountry of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, with support from the Community Foundation of Jackson Hole. Backcountry Zero is a project of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation. You can support this project and volunteers at Teton County Search and Rescue by going to tetoncountysar.org slash donate. That's tetoncountysar.org slash donate. If you like listening to The Fine Line, share us with a friend. The forecast looked promising the day before, but when climbers set out to summit the Grand Teton on July 21, 2010, a thunderstorm blasted the iconic peak. As repeated lightning strikes pinned climbers to steep exposed terrain, rangers suddenly found themselves racing to save 17 people, even as the mountain remained shrouded in storm clouds. The incident turned into the largest ever rescue effort undertaken on the Grand. When we left camp at 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning at the lower saddle, it was our belief that the chances of precipitation that day were 20%. But in fact, I guess the, the forecast had been updated and storms were expected. My name is Steve Tyler. I was raised in Provo, Utah and loved climbing the mountains, not so much technical climbing, but just hiking and hiking adventures of one kind or another. I've climbed the Grand five times, I believe. So this would have been my sixth ascent of the Grand. All my previous climbs were back when I was a young man uh, in my 20s and 30s. At the time of this climb, I was 67 years old. There was a lapse of a lot of time, but still, you don't forget the way up the Grand. From what I remember, the forecast was calling for, you know, kind of the typical 20% chance of thunderstorms in the afternoon, which is pretty much every day, you know, in the mountains. So this is Matt Walker. I started coming out to Montana when I was in college and got a job here in Big Sky as an outdoor guide. And that's where I met up with some of my climbing partners, Alan and Betsy, and then their friend Andrew, and got introduced um, into some more climbing adventures with them, and then they were the ones that kind of had the the idea to go do Grand. Alan had, you know, kind of meticulously drawn out the route, you know, kind of pitch by pitch on his notepad, so he kind of had a rough idea, you know, of what it was going to look like and tried to map out where the wrap stations were to get down. Went to bed. I remember it was Andrew and I, Andrew Larson, uh, in a tent, he had brought like a little poetry book. I remember him doing a little bit of reading and I think I just kind of hung out and passed out pretty quickly. And then I think we were probably getting moving around 5.45 or 6. The party consisted of my oldest son, Mike, my second son, Dan, my son-in-law, Troy, and a friend, uh, Henry Appleton. Uh, so there were five of us. My wife says... Uh, it was the worst day of her life. She, she points out that all of the adult male members of her family were on the mountain that day. 
until we met her at the hospital, she just wasn't aware who was who was okay and who wasn't. Mike and Dan are really very strong hikers. Both have climbed uh, Mount Rainier, and they're uh, probably more experienced than I am, in fact. Troy and Henry have had probably less technical climbing experience, but both very strong, capable hikers. So Alan would would go up and set the route and then get to a point, and him and Betsy were on one rope team, and then it was Andrew and I on the second rope team. Alan would go up, then Betsy, then Andrew, and then I, I basically cleaned every route. So we were making pretty good time. I remember doing some really fun pitches. I mean, the climbing wasn't super difficult. We had done a lot of climbing that summer, so I think we were all in, in pretty good shape. And I remember kind of getting towards, you know, the top, and we, we kind of went up one last pitch where it was, you know, a true on um, snow field that we were hiking up. And I just remember, you know, thinking how awesome it was, and this was like kind of a dream come true for me, and, you know, doing some high mountain mountaineering and just, basically just below, I think, what kind of the summit ridge, um, maybe there's a better name for it. And we were kind of on this little outcropping. The rest of the team had gone up and over, so they were actually out of sight. I couldn't see anybody, and I was kind of the last one to go. And then that's when I, I kind of you know started hearing some rumblings. Uh, when, when it started to snow, when it got bad, we didn't want to be up on the summit for the storm, and so we decided to hunker down at the top of the uh, Owen chimney, wait for things to clear, which of course never happened. started kind of raining a little bit. I was starting to panic a little bit, you know, because I couldn't see anybody. I was trying to yell up to them just to figure out what was going on. We did have two-way radios, but I couldn't get anybody on the radio. Just kind of went up and over this little outcropping and kind of got along the, the, the ridge and basically just kind of ran down the rope line and that's when I first felt, you know, the first strike. It was kind of pretty mild, just kind of like touching your finger to an electric fence. I don't know if this is the case, but Andrew and I do have similar burns on the top of our left ear. And I don't know if the, the strike hit somewhere, you know, along and, and kind of traveled down the rope to each of us. We uh, set up the rappel down the Owen chimney. Mike went down uh, without any incident, my oldest son. Then following Mike, uh, Dan hooked in and started down the rappel. Uh, he got down not very far, maybe a third of the way down the chimney uh, when the first bolt of lightning struck. We all felt it. Henry, who was uh, a little closer to the edge of the ledge that we were on, his legs were sort of immobilized by that first bolt. Dan decided to come back up and see if he could help us. Dan was actually starting to ascend the, the rappel when a second bolt struck. And that one was by far the, the most intense. That bolt of lightning knocked Dan and Troy both unconscious. I suspect Henry was momentarily unconscious, and I'm not even sure if I maintained consciousness myself, but my arm was across Troy's chest when when I came to, and it was 
sort of an out-of-body experience. My arm was there, and I knew it was my arm, but I couldn't move it. I couldn't. Uh, I had no control at all over that arm for an instant. As some feeling started to return to that arm, I pulled it off of Troy, sort of crawled over uh, on top of him. It seemed to me that he was not breathing. I put my mouth over his mouth and started to blow into his mouth. That was the most terrifying moment of my life. And we kind of hunkered around this rock. I remember right against the cliff wall, that's when the first big strike hit us. That was pretty terrifying. I just remember looking at, at Alan's face in just pure agony. He had the ferning on his back, and so I just remember him explaining how it felt. He said it, you know, it felt like hot tar had been poured all over his back. That's when it really got pretty serious for us. We were um, just trying to figure out what, what we were going to do, and there really wasn't anything. We tried to move away from the cliff at that point because we thought, you know, okay, maybe the, the lightning's hitting the rock and then, and then getting into us. We came away from the cliff band a little bit. We actually brought the ropes out. We tried standing on the ropes for a little insulation. We got out an uh, emergency blanket, and we kind of put that around all of us. We basically just hung out for the next hour, hour and a half, as we got struck over and over. There were kind of three big strikes that I remember. The air would kind of build up with electricity. It would literally be you know, buzzing so much that you know you can hear it. There were sparks jumping around, and I remember seeing sparks coming out of my hand. The experience of the actual lightning is really quite varied. I don't remember it being a particularly painful. Maybe I went numb. The strike would happen, and then it would hit the mountain, bounce out into us, and we just like all fell to the ground. I don't remember if we really lost consciousness, but we were definitely knocked out a little bit. You'd come to a little bit, you'd be laying on the ground and you couldn't feel any of your body. It's kind of like when your arm goes to sleep and you have to kind of move it to try to wake it up. You know, it would take a couple minutes to try to get the feeling back in your limbs and then you'd kind of get you know, yourself situated and uh, see if everybody else was okay, huddle back together and then it would happen again. So we tried squatting, we tried sitting, a couple different variations just to, to figure out if there was anything, but we were basically just sitting ducks, and I don't know if anybody was really thinking, like, this is the end. I think our first call came in at 12.23, looking at the report. My name is Scott Gunther. I'm currently the Ginny Lake District Ranger. I think this is my 28th year in Grand Teton National Park. And I guess in those 28 years, I've been involved in just about every kind of rescue imaginable in these mountains. You get this call, and everybody knows where it is, right? You look up to the Grand, and you're like, holy cow, man, that thing is socked in. Like, this is going to be ugly. It's your first thought, just going like, we know we got a lot of hurt people, and we can't even see the mountain. But we get to where we can, and so we're able to sneak into the lower saddle, start dropping in resources, identified really early on like hey people are going to be walking up the hill for this one and so loading jack and helen up with rescue equipment grabbing dan corn one of the exit mountain guides that was already up there and sending those guys up the hill as the first wave it was just before 2 p.m when rangers jack mcconnell and helen bowers arrived at the lower saddle the same stormy weather that had climbers pinned on ledges 
meant the rangers would have to go by foot. As I flew in and looked at the Grand and knew it was shrouded in clouds, I knew that it was going to be a little more difficult than the normal short haul pickoff, you know, where you just snatch somebody off the top of the peak and and you're good to go um, on the end of a long line. This was going to be old school. This was going to be ground pounding, moving quickly in the mountains, hopefully making some good decisions. Jack McConnell, uh, Jenny Lake Ranger for 22 years, uh, a lot of rescue experience with these guys here. Incredible, dedicated culture of rescue work in the Jenny Lake sub-district and district at this time. Been involved in a lot of the rescues over the years, but this particular rescue, I was uh, first load up to the lower saddle. After a couple, couple strikes, the storm kind of started to lighten up a little bit, and we knew that we were too high up for any real rescue effort. We did start hearing the helicopters flying around, and I don't know if it's before we heard the helicopters or after, but we did make the decision to send Andrew down the hill to try to get help. For whatever reason, Andrew was not affected by the strikes like we all were. You know, even after the fact, he didn't really have too many injuries other than like the kind of identical burn that we had on the top of our ear, but nothing to the extent like Alan and Betsy and, and myself had. He was in a lot better shape to try to go down and he took a rope and took some gear and started making his way down to try to find some of the wrap stations and get down to a point where he could find help and kind of tell them where we were. We, we had Alan's notes from where the, the wrap anchors were, but none of us had been up there before. And so, you know, it was kind of like he was just, just you know, walking off the side of a mountain. We, we had no idea if we'd ever see him again. We're trying to do the numbers this whole time. It's like, how many people do we have and where the heck are they? At that point in time, I would assume Matt and the climb party were at that place where they'd been hunkered down the whole time, I'm guessing. didn't come from their party. It actually came from one of the two parties lower down on the mountain. So uh, it wasn't until probably an hour or more into the event that we realized there was a third party involved. Within a half a dozen breaths that I blew into Troy, he began to breathe on, breathe on his own. I revived him, shook him a little, and, and he seemed to be conscious, although he has no memory of that, uh, that moment. I then turned to Henry, who was down at my feet, who had been calling to me, and he was close to the edge of the ledge and must have been afraid that he was going to fall over the edge. I reached down and grabbed hold of his a strap on his pack and, and realized that I couldn't close my hand. That arm was still not working. But one way or another, we tugged and pulled together. Henry and I got him back away from the edge of the ledge. Uh, as soon as he was safe, I was crawling at this point crawled up to my pack about 15 feet away, up under a sort of an, a ledge, kind of an overhang. Got into my pack, got out the phone, and made a 911 call. The first 911 call was answered in Idaho, and she said, let me transfer you to the rangers. And in that transfer, it got dropped. They called me and left a message on my phone while I was trying to call them. And that message was, do you really need to be rescued? Are you really in dire straits? 
that scared me that they were not taking me seriously. So then I attempted to call the Jenny Lake Ranger Station and my mind was a little muddled at this point. I punched a number that I had called the night before thinking that it was the Jenny Lake Ranger Station and it turned out to be Dan's wife. And when she she answered the phone, I explained that we'd been struck by lightning and would she please call 911 and tell them that we really were in in serious trouble. There was there was lightning and thunder in the distance. It's a huge incident, right? I think there are over 92 personnel involved by the time it's all said and done. 17 people ultimately um, affected by this storm above 13,000 feet on the Grand Teton. And so everybody's got a small piece to play in it. And we all got little bits of the story. Matt, you filled in some things just now that, you know, certainly I didn't know. And I'm sure Jack didn't know before now. We have a contract helicopter that uh, lives here basically all summer. That was coming up from Pinedale. We knew that an additional aviation resource would be huge for us, and so we called the helicopter down from Yellowstone. That happened to be there as well. So ultimately, we had two helicopters involved in the operation. And then as more resources rolled in, just kept sending waves of rangers up the hill. Joining the steady stream of rangers, Scott Gunther flew into the lower saddle at 2.30 p.m. And I kind of set up our operations on the lower saddle. Our original intent was to try and insert people via short haul, rescuers via short haul to the upper mountain. That's the fastest way we're going to get to anybody. But our reconnaissance flights, based on the weather, kind of dictated, like, you're not flying, we're going by ground. And so Jim talked to one of the party members that was at the base of the sergeant's chimney, and that gentleman had described himself basically as, like, everything he could do to make the 911 phone call. He had the use of, barely the use of one arm, over the phone told Jim, like, I'm paralyzed, I can't feel my legs, I can't move one of my arms, I'm barely able to use this. I think he was able to dial the number, but then had to speak on speakerphone to uh, convey that his party was hurt. He also couldn't even see around to the rest of his party. They were spread out on a rappel. Jack's grabbing information basically as he's going by these guys, like Jack relays a little bit of information to us via the radio and then continues on. You know, it's real easy in uh, the rescue world and in climbing uh, sometimes to get overwhelmed by, like, the big picture and the totality of the circumstances. What you've got to do and what we've done for years there at Jenny Lake is that we tend to boil things down to one problem at a time. So you look at it and you say, man, there's a ton of folks up there. Boy, they all need help. You know, how do we break this up into manageable segments in order to keep us safe and efficient as we move up the mountain. So we made a determination that we could move up the mountain once again, not too exposed in the uh, Owen Spaulding area. Helen Bowers being operations chief, and then Dan Korn, very strong climbers, very good heads uh, in a rescue sense and mountain sense. We had uh, discussed the weather and our margins and our risk as we looked uh, to the west uh, with these various cells that were passing by and as we were just about the Black Dyke that runs uh, from east to west uh, across the mountain range, we encountered one of the members of the party from Matt's party, as well, well as one of the members of the Tyler party who had descended. They were uninjured. They gave some initial information about the numbers of people that were on the mountain and uh, what uh, the extent of their injuries were. We directed them down the mountain. There was another wave of rangers coming up 
also mixed in with some XM guides that would be able to usher them down through the final stretches to the lower saddle, which is essentially a trail below the Black Dyke. Uh, encountered several members of the Sparks Party, uh, the ones that were in the double chimney area, the crawl area when they were affected by the lightning strikes. They were descending the Idaho Express, which is sort of an off-route route down uh, the mountain. We directed them that to reascend their rope and to wait in a relatively safe location as this next wave of rangers came up and they could guide them then down to the hut where A.J. Wheeler, Scott Gunther, and John Filardo, one of the Helitac crew members from the Forest Service, were waiting and they could do a, you know, kind of a patient triage and see who would who would be flown off first. They said they were hit by a bolt of lightning. One of their partners was, quote unquote, blown off the side of the mountain. If you're blown off the mountain in the area of the crawl and the double chimneys, there's a significant fall that occurs there down the Black Ice Coolar uh, into Valhalla Canyon, a a fall of some distance of 2,000 to 3,000 feet. I relayed that information to Scott, who then relayed that back to our rescue 701R and Jim Springer, the coordinator. So we knew that potentially we had one fatality because there's not many places to hang up or ledges to, to land on. The weather was not improving. Jack and Helen were that first wave, and then as subsequent waves went up, Nick Armitage was one of the rangers that arrived at the lower saddle, and as he was packed up and ready to leave the saddle, he walked up to me and said, let me get this right. We're going up the mountain to a bunch of parties that were struck by lightning, and I can look out and see more storms coming, and the chance of that happening again are likely. I didn't have a great answer for him other than, yeah, we're going to do it as safely as we can, but we risk a lot to save a lot. Got some pretty critically injured patients and a lot of them. Balancing out what we're willing to save and what we're willing to risk, this is one where we want to move up the mountain in a prepared and cautious manner, but we're going to go. It's a personal choice, too. It's a, Nick had the option. He knew it. We all do. And uh, there's no force in it. And if somebody says, this one's not for me, that's totally appropriate. We have that happen. I fully respect that. Every member of our team does. He voiced it. It's good that we have those conversations. And at the same time, he went, yeah, I just want to make sure I was clear on that. And I'm still going. It's my choice. Helen decided to stay behind and be operations chief at the uh, upper saddle. Dan and I, as a climbing team of two, would move faster than a climbing team of three, and we could um, ascertain what was occurring on the upper mountain at that time. So Dan and I did arrive at the uh, belly roll on the crawl, which is the first really pitch of the Owen Spalding where you rope up. It's essentially a a 60-meter pitch that starts um, in a gravel area continues around a bulge in a rock called the belly roll across this small place called the crawl into what we call the double chimneys. Hadn't encountered any uh, climbers in that area, and unbeknownst to us, Matt's party uh, was descending the upper mountain. And thanks again, Matt. I mean, super valuable that you guys self-extricated from a really difficult situation. We knew we had to do something to try to save ourselves. Betsy's in pretty bad shape with her hand. And my leg, you know, was hurting pretty bad. I could walk a little bit. And then Alan, you know, kind of got everybody organized, got our harnesses back on, kind of went into full-on rescue mode. I just remember him throwing slings on a couple boulders and trying to make some 
wrap anchors to a point where we could actually kind of lower ourselves down one at a time. There was a couple hairy rappels. We'd go one by one. We only had one rope. So Alan would go first and kind of get to a spot where it was safe. And then Betsy would go down. And then I would come down last. And I just remember at one point, we were kind of making a, a down traverse. I had got down kind of, kind of the half halfway point and then slipped. And if I wouldn't have had my hand in the anchor um, or in like the safety position on my belay device, I probably would have taken uh, at least myself down the mountain as well as Alan and Betsy. So I kind of pendulum swung out kind of right below where we had started and then was able to kind of make myself over to them. But I, I do remember that point where it was it was a pretty pretty scary point in the down climb. And then we did find the chains, luckily. From that point, that was kind of a big relief. We knew kind of that we were on the right path to getting down. We made, you know, maybe one or two wraps, and then that's where we ran into um, Helen. And I just remember seeing Helen and literally breaking down in tears. I mean, I just, it was the biggest relief. As they were descending, we were ascending. And um, we got into the double chimneys. I remember water, you know, gushing down the cracks and snow and grapple landing on the ledges. Uh, you wouldn't choose to climb that in those conditions as a, a private climber. However, uh, once again, rescuers managed the risks and, and got to where we needed to go. I remember very vividly uh, the sparks flying around. I remember the smells associated with the lightning strikes. Uh, smells like burnt hair, but I don't remember a sound. I'm sure there must have been a tremendous clap of thunder. We all had some burns, burned clothing and burned hair and no burns on our skin. While I was attempting to, to pull Henry back off the edge of the ledge, the third bolt of lightning struck. In a way, that was really the one that was most terrifying because it seemed like there was no end in sight. After the second one, we thought, well, at least we survived and it's over. But the third one, it was not over. We felt it, but it was not debilitating. And I remember thinking, well, you know, maybe this is it, but all I can do is all I can do. And just hoping that it would stop sometime. Got to the top of the double chimneys on the end of the catwalk, and we could then see Dan Tyler, uh, who was at the base of the Owen chimney. He had some feeling back in his arms, but had temporary paralysis from the waist down. He was talkative. He was uh, responding well to questions. He was alert and oriented to person, place, time, and events. So he seemed reasonable uh, to us. In other words, with that paralysis, and then he might gain back the use of his legs. So Dan Korn set up an anchor and tied him off and said, okay, Dan, we're going to be back for you. There are other rangers coming up the mountain. We wanted to ascertain if we had more critically injured patients above him. So we uh, continued to ascend. Finally, we heard some voices down below, down at, with Dan, and that was reassuring that it seemed like things were beginning to happen. Then the uh, rappel rope that was still in place tightened and we knew somebody was climbing up. 
We got to the top of the Owen chimney, and lo and behold, there were three other um, climbers at the top there with various injuries, mostly that temporary paralysis. One of those injured parties had been knocked unconscious, was not breathing. Steve Tyler, one of the climbers that we accounted over the three at the top of the Owen chimney, had performed rescue breaths on him. And after 10 breaths, he was able to get his climbing partner back up and around and alert and oriented. Pretty amazing. Steve himself had been hit by lightning and knocked unconscious, and when he woke up, had the wherewithal to go right to uh, rescue breaths and potentially save this uh, young lad's life. It was, uh, okay, what's next kind of thing. Once again, small pieces of uh, this rescue and not overwhelmed by, you know, the, the totality of the circumstances. Did see a bit of clearing. Uh, knew that Matt Hart, our helicopter pilot, and Chris Harder, the spotter on board, would evaluate anything I requested. I did request for assistance in helicopter or short-haul extraction from the upper mountain at the top of the um, uh, Owen Chimney. And at that time, the weather had somewhat stabilized. There was not clearing, but the cloud deck was higher. They did a couple of rotations around the peak and determined that it was uh, suitable for short haul extraction. And Scott had loaded uh, two screamer suits, which are evacuation suits similar to a jacket diaper configuration with a harness uh, on the end of the line. They were a very welcome sight. They were really professional. It was a good feeling to see to see and be handled by those guys. They knew what they were doing and then a helicopter came and lowered some equipment on a ledge just above us. The rangers went over and got the uh, sort of a diaper harness that goes between your legs and your arms go through it and then there's a big ring. The helicopter can drop a rope and uh, pick them up. They dropped two suits Henry and Troy were put in the suits and moved out to the edge of the the ledge, really right where we had been when the lightning struck. And the helicopter then returned. Uh, they snapped the carabiner into their harness, picked them up, and that was a beautiful sight to see them lifted off the mountain. They were the first two extracted from the mountain the upper mountain at about 13,200 feet, at which time the weather sealed in again. It was not looking real good. I could walk pretty well. Dan Korn, the Exum climber, attached the rope to me and belayed me to the uh, Owen Spalding rappel point. They uh, hooked me up and lowered me down. And when I got to the upper saddle, there were uh, other, other rescues there. A woman named Helen was there, and I explained to her that uh, I was concerned about Dan. She took me over to a place where there were three other climbers that were waiting under a plastic tarp. She told me to wait under there. I actually um, got off the rappel first because I thought I could be some assistance for Ed Visnovsky and Helen Bowers, who were doing patient triage there. So when I arrived on scene, there was some huddling going on in an alcove on the upper saddle, and that was the other two members of Matt's party, and they were doing patient assessment on them. And I remember looking at those guys, and I was so glad that they were off the mountain. I remember seeing Betsy and their faces, and it seemed like 
and I'm not sure you guys were super relieved when you saw Helen and I was super relieved to see you guys. And I was super relieved that we had cleared all the patients off the upper mountain. It was, um, it was a time that, um, I, I remember as being a little bit more peaceful than the hectic nature of the, of the whole, uh, event really. It, it, it seemed to be kind of quiet. However, there were additional lightning strikes that were occurring. And I remember, uh, bumping my elbow against the rock after one of those lightning strikes and a little ground current. Now it wasn't much, but it was enough for me to move my arm away from the cliff band. And I experienced a little bit of what you guys had experienced on the upper mountain. I was like, okay, you know, as um, one of our pilots used to say, this is no game. It was serious time and we still had work to do. We were still, you know, kind of very much uh, on the mountain and in the experience. And I just remember, you know, kind of, we were all kind of lined up, hunkered down, and we actually had big tarps over us. And so you couldn't even see out because I think the tarps were protecting us from the elements and trying to keep us warm. And I remember getting like sleeping bags wrapped around us. Some of those additional little strikes and in feeling some of those additional little shocks of electricity, you know, it very much was still real. You know, we weren't totally in the clear yet. We could hear you guys talking about, you know, okay, well, if we can't extract you, you know, today, then we might have to overnight. And just thinking, you know, that would have been really, really bad. You know, come to find out later about our injuries, um, what, what could have happened if we would have had to overnight. But with Steve Tyler, I think that's who I actually ended up getting short-hauled with. Yep. I just remember he was there with us at the upper saddle and just the sheer terror on his face um, of what he had experienced and not really knowing what was happening to his son. It was pretty, it was pretty daunting and frightening. During those um, extractions um, from the upper saddle, we were right at the limit of our, you know, our operational limit for winds. They were high winds, but they were consistent winds and they weren't gusty. So, you know, decisions are made. They're made on the ground, but they're made also with the pilot and his expertise. And at that time, Matt Hart was an amazing pilot, super skillful, had done a number of missions for us. So he was uh, in the game. But once again, that weather could have sealed in. And we were still thinking about two Rangers and one patient that we had sort of stranded by the, uh, the bottom of the Owen chimney, that, boy, I'm looking at the weather coming in, and it literally had that cloud-to-cloud spider-webby connection that went out for miles and miles. Like, I could see, you know, 40 miles of lightning uh, to our west. While the Rangers flew the first two patients off the upper mountain at 4.48 p.m., Rangers Marty Vidak and Drew Hardesty climbed up to Dan Tyler. Before they could get Tyler off the mountain, another thunderstorm swept in, forcing the team to suspend air operations. It was pretty intense. And I remember Marty Vidak, one of the last rangers on scene, he was around the corner. And so he couldn't see the weather coming from the west and the south. And he said, Jack, how does the weather look? And I was at the relative safety of the upper saddle. And I said, Bub, it doesn't look good. So Marty and Drew had, you know, just like you did, Matt, and your gear got away from all metal gear tied off to the rope. They actually untied, I believe, at one point because the ropes were wet and they didn't want any ground current coming down the ropes and getting, you know, getting zapped um, uh, that way. The current tends to travel down ridges 
it'll gap between. So if you get under an overhang, chances of that you're kind of like a spark plug in there. If the the current passes through the rock, it can pass through that rock into your head and out your feet. So you want to try and minimize the places where current can arc through your body, like Matt's team did and like others probably did that day, is standing on some insulation from the ground. So they stood on their ropes. I've done that very same thing, wadded up on my rope, huddled down in kind of a fetal position. Ideally, if there's current that passes anywhere near you or through you, its entrance and exit will be in the most confined space possible. So if you've got one arm on the rock and one leg on the ground, if it hits that rock and passes through your body, it'll, it can go right through your arm, out your foot, and has the greatest arc across your body possible. You want to minimize that. So that huddle in the fetal position, arms wrapped around your legs, if you're out in the open, is probably your probably best bet. And then getting off the ridges. And so I've been on the Exum Ridge during thunderstorms where it's like we bail off into the Ford Gully and the cooler over there and, and uh, standing, in my mind, standing on a bunch of loose rock or scree as opposed to standing on solid rock. Anything that's going to break up what I, in my mind, envision as electricity just passing by as, you know, the speed of light. If it does hit me, I've heard more than one person describe getting blown into the air, you got to think about where you're going to land. And so it may be most appropriate to stay tied into a rope, fix yourself to an anchor, think about where your body's gonna go if it does get moved by a lightning bolt. A lot of things that you're balancing there, sometimes it's, let's just keep moving. Yeah, it is pretty terrifying and you're just SOL. I mean, there's nothing that you can really do other than to get down off the mountain like as fast and safely as possible. You know, I can attest, I have some major, you know, lightning PTSD where if I'm doing anything now in the outdoors and there's, you know, any any hint of a storm or lightning, I am the first one to say, you know, we have got to get out and, um, you know, get to cover. Professional forecasters will miss these events. However, when you, you are in the mountains and you're seeing, uh, you know, a manifestation of uh, a large cloud bank out of clear blue skies, there's some instability in the atmosphere. Novice and experts alike get get caught in those storms. It is good to read that weather and uh, watch the skies. And as you get more experience, you take a look at things and say, well, you know, is it really worth it? Am I going to get objectively driven or, you know, is the mountain going to be there tomorrow, next week or next year? I'm going to come back and, and do it. And, and, and so not to put the blinders on sometimes on those events. Well, once again, it's it, it, uh, it, it's difficult to judge, but by stopping in the ranger station and Matt, your party did everything right. It, it sounds like on the on the front end, getting to um, the ranger station, it's a it's super valuable resource. It's a wealth of information. There's super experienced folks in there, even if they're going to go out on a day climb. You know, they have to come in for an overnight permit if they're Vivian up in Garnet Canyon. But um, you know, uh, we'd like to talk to everyone. I always say the rescue's not over until all the rescuers are out of the hills. We get their patients off, but the rescue's still going on. Between that 5 o'clock to 6.30 is when that next wave of thunderstorm hit. That point in time was the biggest nail-biter for the rescuers, and me at the lower saddle in a relatively safe position, talking to Jim Springer, the incident commander at the rescue cache. We know those guys are up there, and they're kind of just stuck where they are. Marty and Drew, I think, are out on the ledge at the— double chimneys there are brothers there are family you know there are friends i mean we have a 
really incredibly tight-knit community at Lupin Meadows of rescuers. And man, to have two bros like stranded out on super exposed terrain was was something to contemplate. Super tough for an hour and a half. Like Jack said, he felt the ground current coming through the rock at one point. You don't get away with everything all the time, so you really limit your exposure whenever you can. We came out of that with no additional harm done. Still had five people to short haul off the mountain, and so at about 6.30 or 6.45, got things going again. It was interesting listening to Jack before because when he was talking about how relieved he was that everybody was off the upper mountain, but he's still over a 1,000 vertical feet above the lower saddle and really technical terrain. And to move an injured patient that's incapacitated from the upper saddle to the lower saddle by ground is an incredibly difficult feat. It's almost easier to lower that patient off the north face of the grand. You can rely on the ropes to do that. From the upper saddle to the lower saddle, the steepness is not that great. And the route contours that you have to do to move down those ridges and through these boulder fields uh, would require so many more rescuers than a lowering on the north face. It sounds like it should be easier, but yeah, he's relieved that they're off the upper <laughs> mountain, but <laughs> right. they're, they're still in the thick of it for sure. Yeah, and, and not to mention you're between the two biggest lightning rods around, the Grand Teton and the Enclosure, and um, that's been the scene of numerous mm-hmm. lightning strikes and numerous issues with folks over the years. So yeah, that was a, an exposed location. You know, that storm wraps up at 645. Everybody, we're all, we've been doing this long enough. All the rescuers are like-minded enough to realize, like, what are our options? And we all realize that our margins have now gotten much narrower because we're running up against the clock. When we resume short-haul operations, I remember at the lower saddle at one point, it was like raining patients from the sky in screamer suits (laughs) because we've got uh, the Yellowstone Llama helicopter landing at the lower saddle. A.J. Wheeler, our doctor, who's been using the Exa Mountain Guide's tent up there as a little mash unit for triage, has got his patients all tagged and who's going out next and in what order. I'm helping load patients in the llama. As they're as we're closing the door on the llama and he's lifting off, I turn around and walk back over to where we've been delivering uh, the short-haul patients. And I remember the llama out of the left corner of my eye, I just close the door and they're lifting off, and I walk over and the uh, patients coming out of the sky are just at two zero feet, 20 feet above the ground. Catch them, take the screamer suits off, put them back on the end of the line, it goes away. People come out, walk those patients into the tent, and uh, and as fast as that ship can turn around, it's less than 15 minutes, has two more patients and coming back to lower saddle. And Scotty passed his test as an air traffic controller <laughs> that day. <laughs> it, was, it was fairly, yeah, that, that definitely got our attention for sure that day. Helen came back over and said to me, uh, Steve, can you come out? And I crawled out from under the, the tarp and she pointed to the sky north and says, watch that area and a helicopter appeared there dangling from the end of the rope on that helicopter was my son Dan which was an awfully thoughtful thing for her to do I really appreciated that and I, I, I do remember kind of getting roped up in the screamer suits really thinking like holy shit this is like one of the coolest you know roller coaster rides I've ever been on he was right there next to me and we did get back down to the lower saddle and then we we got into the tent 
um, to be kind of triaged uh, additionally, and that's where you guys cut off um, some of our clothing and removed my boot and then kind of saw some of the, the extent of our injuries and then decided to make a pretty quick decision to get us in the helicopter down to uh, the meadow. A huge success was when we knew every injured patient was off the mountain. Again, the rescue wasn't over by far, but the, all the injured patients were off the mountain. And uh, at that point, it's about getting the rescuers down. And so we ended up leaving a whole bunch of gear cached at that upper saddle and uh, and had all the rangers and Exa Mountain guides who were up there still scurried down to lower saddle. I spent the night in the hospital and then planned to go into surgery the next morning on my foot. And so Betsy and I both had fasciotomies done. Um, I, mine was on my foot where they made three incisions um, because of the burn and because of the swelling. They... Um, needed to relieve that pressure, and so they performed that operation um, to kind of let the foot uh, expand, and then Betsy had the same operation. So she was wearing a little cheap, you know, kind of Timex watch on her left wrist and had a metal back to it and didn't think to take it off during the whole uh, ordeal. So she had a pretty bad third-degree burn from that metal on the back of her watch. Because of that, her forearm started to swell, and so she had a fasciotomy done on her forearm to relieve that pressure. Her finger, her right index finger, was quote-unquote 80% you know, dead, and so she had the decision to either try to save the finger or just amputate, and I think she just made a pretty quick decision just to amputate the finger you know, after the the time spent in Jackson, we got back to Bozeman, she did have some pretty bad nerve damage um, from that um, watch burn on her left um, arm. But we spent four days in the hospital down in Jackson, discovered some other third-degree burns. Uh, I have a pretty sizable, um, perfect circle on my left bicep. I have um, a burn on my left side, kind of torso and then pretty bad burn obviously on my foot and those were actually skin grafted um, later on when we were uh, back in Bozeman and then actually I had additional skin graft done when I got back to Indiana and I think Alan because of you know his internal injuries he kind of processed it differently he was diagnosed he had a bunch of air bubbles that had formed around his heart and his lungs had to be assessed over you know a certain couple of days uh, to make sure that none of those air bubbles moved into the wrong spot. Otherwise, that could have been really catastrophic for him. Without his kind of guidance and level-headedness, uh, I, I don't think that we would have gotten off that mountain. Definitely not in the shape that we're in today. But when we were at the top, trying to figure out a way for us to get down. He, he knew that we weren't going to be rescued at that point. Like, I remember kind of getting excited here in the helicopters. I was like, oh, yeah, you know, like, you know, the helicopters are going, we'll, we'll be fine. And he was like over not even paying attention, you know, going through gear, getting slings ready, you know, getting the rope and, and, and everything, because he knew that we would have to get lower on the mountain before anything like a rescue would actually happen. You know, there was the, the, the climber that passed away. And when we didn't really know about any of, any of that until after we got into the hospital. It wasn't until the next day that we actually were able to locate him and 
get in there and retrieve that body. About half a dozen of us went in and to climb up to him, do a lowering, and, uh, and then we were able to fly him out that day. The, the, the kid that perished, he was the same age as I was, you know, and I learned after the fact that he was, you know, on, you know, the climbing adventure with his potentially future father-in-law, you know, to go have a good time, kind of get to know you uh, experience. And so that, that shook me pretty hard um, just to know that, you know, we were kind of in that same age range um, and, you know, he was not going to be uh, coming off that mountain alive. Yeah, Brandon Oldenkamp was the gentleman that, that died in this um, event. I think it was the day before that Brandon's party had actually climbed the Middle Teton. I do know that and saw pictures of Brandon smiling, happy, young, healthy person standing on top of the Middle Teton just the day before, I think. Yeah, and then to know that he passes away in a really unfortunate accident on the following day is a pretty tough one. Having what you need to take care of yourself in your pack when the weather changes or somebody in your party gets injured is huge because if you've got the 10 essentials, you know, critical to that would be a light source, extra layers, a hat and gloves, food and water, and just a basic first aid kit. Those things go a long way towards increasing your margin when things go bad. If you're out there with your running shoes and a pair of shorts and you get caught in a storm, you don't have a jacket to put on, you'll get cold. If you get cold, you're going to either keep moving when you could have hunkered down under your raincoat. You know, you lose feeling in your arms and legs. You can't hold on as well. You start making poor decisions. You start doing things in a hasty manner. Now you're doing something hasty on wet rock while you're cold. It's a, it's a bad recipe for things going wrong. And I would reiterate that uh, it's interesting Matt, you guys didn't have a cell phone. We did get two calls via cell phone, but having a cell phone is not a plan for a rescue. And you guys, Matt, demonstrated that, you know, self-reliance and resiliency in extracting yourself down the mountain. It was greatly appreciated. And like you say, when, uh, you know, you press the easy button or folks press the easy button and expect a rescue— there's a lot of moving parts that go into um, what it is that occurs up in those mountains. Yeah, I reiterate that to you, Matt. I applaud your party's efforts in getting yourselves off the mountain. And it most likely made the difference of you guys not at least spending another night out on the mountain. You know, if you guys would have had to go up that high to try to get us, it would have put a lot more people in jeopardy. We, we had to, you know, bail on gear um, at the top, you know, and use slings to, um, you know, make makeshift uh, anchors to get down. You know, if we wouldn't have had those extra pieces of gear uh, in our packs uh, and on our harnesses, you know, we, we wouldn't have been in that same situation. Well, the team up on the hill, you know, I kind of think of that as the tip of the spear, we sometimes say. They can't do the job alone. We've always got somebody on the sharp end that are out there touching the patients to get them out of there, but without the helicopter to retrieve them without the mash unit at the lower saddle, triaging patients without the Jenny Lake rescue cache and everybody assembled there with ambulances and additional aircraft um, all the way to the hospital. That efficiency of treatment is what makes this thing successful. And like we said, there was over 92 people involved that included, in addition to the National Park Service, um, Yellowstone National Park came down and helped the United States Forest Service with the Helitac crew members were there to help. 
We had ambulance crews from the county um, on scene, doctors that were actually in the mountains with us and at the rescue cache, uh, St. John's Medical Center, Teton County Search and Rescue, a whole lot of people, Exxon Mountain Guides especially, because we had a number of those folks that we basically took away from their guided parties, took over their hut even, um, to help manage this rescue. So without the full community effort, this rescue is not a success. We do have a bunch of gear at the Virginia Lake Ranger Station from this event. Ice axes that are actually like melted with holes burned in them, carabiners that are melted and welded shut, stoppers that are variously affected by these lightning strikes. So even if you can't see the individuals and the scars that folks like uh, Matt are carrying around with them, when you look at the damage done to this hardware, it's pretty incredible to think about the power that it takes to burn a hole in an ice axe. Those were life-threatening experiences that we had there. Dan's oldest daughter is going to be married this December. Both Dan and Troy have daughters that are going to college. The, the circle of people that were impacted by those rescues gets bigger and larger all the time. It's just a wonderful thing that they've done for us. You know, I had some burns, but uh, they were not not really very serious. They were surface kinds of burns, and they were gone within a few days. I do have some big burns on the coat that I was wearing, and I sort of keep that and keep my underwear that had some burns on it to remind me of the day. And, you know, I attempted to take a photograph of... Troy and Henry as they were being lifted off and I discovered that my camera in those days cameras and phones were not necessarily one and the same my camera had been fried by the lightning it would have been a much different day if my phone had been fried by the lightning wouldn't it it uh, certainly made me more cautious and more aware of what the perils are but it didn't diminish my love for the mountains but when a cloud gets in front of the sun, uh, we start thinking about descending. Uh, I would never expose myself to the kind of peril that we exposed ourselves to that day. I'm a fair weather hiker now. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a vision of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to reduce fatalities and serious injuries in the Tetons. Find out more at backcountryzero.com.